in, in the beginning, I didn't call it open innovation. I wasn't sure what to call it, but I knew it was a phenomenal observation of something that uh, Michael Porter would have had a hard time explaining. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, I'm joined once again by VHU professor Dries Foms for a fascinating discussion with Dr. Henry Chesborough, director of the Garwood Center for Corporate Innovation, adjunct professor at the Haas School of Business at Cal Berkeley, and chair of open innovation at Luis Guido Carli in Rome. We're discussing the origins of the concept of open innovation, its implications in business today, the role of startups, and the interrelationships of open innovation, open source, and intellectual property. This conversation felt like a masterclass in this fascinating topic, rich with real-world examples that practitioners should relate to. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Henry Chesborough, professor at Cal Berkeley. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. It's an honor to have you here. Garrett, Dries, thank you both for having me here. Awesome. Um, once again, I've got uh, my colleague Dries Fams here joining us, which is always a pleasure to have someone else to bounce ideas off on this journey. Um, so yeah, we're really looking forward to having, the, having this conversation. Um, as I told you offline, we always like to start off our episodes learning a little bit about the individual, the person on the other side of the mic. So Henry, if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about where you come from and the journey that took you where you are today. Yeah, and thank you for asking. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan uh, in a town called Ann Arbor where the University of Michigan is located. So I was a townie uh, in a small town of 50, 60,000 people, but with a very large university. And in some ways it was an ideal place to grow up because you had the intimacy of a small town, but you also had the attractions and stimulation of a much, much larger uh, environment, uh, thanks to the university. Uh, but having uh, grown up there, I did not want to go to university there as well. I was wanted to see the world at that point. So. Uh, I went to college uh, on the East Coast uh, in Connecticut, where I actually met my future wife. And um, she is a Californian. And so I ended up with her in California. And I moved to California in 1981. Uh, and with a tour of duty uh, I'll come to later on, I've been there ever since. Um, so a uh, lot of a lot of great stories there, but 
Um, I would also say that uh, unlike many of my academic colleagues, I actually began life as a manager in a company. Uh, I worked in the hard disk drive industry in the 1980s when that was an exciting industry to be in. Uh, and uh, it was a company called Quantum. And while I was at Quantum, I was one of four people to start up a new subsidiary company inside the larger company. So this is something that gets studied now, but I actually had the experience of doing it. And in our case, it worked and it became valuable and I got stock and all kinds of good stuff happened. Uh, and then um, to fast forward a little bit in the 1990s, the uh, disk drive industry <clears throat> really began to consolidate and it was clear that that was not going to remain a great industry to be in. So initially I was out looking for the next startup. And for a couple of years, I was like Moses in the desert, you know, looking for the promised land. And uh, it was a period 90 to 92 that was kind of after the PC revolution, but before the internet. And that was kind of a, a quiet period in the Valley actually. And long story short, I kissed a lot of frogs, but did not find a prince. And as I began to uh, reflect on that, I thought maybe I'm thinking too narrowly. And so I started talking to old professors of mine and one of them made the suggestion of going back to get a PhD and becoming a professor. And at first I thought he was insulting my business skills uh, but then I looked at him and his life and I thought, wow, it's, a, it's not a bad life. Um, he was on the board of some companies, including the company I was at, Quantum. He was one of our board members. Uh, so he was clearly uh, up to date on what was going on in industry. And, uh, you know, the teaching students and doing the research uh, seemed like stuff I'd always enjoyed doing. So, I, I decided to go for it. And so with the support of my wife, um, I went from being a vice president in a Fortune 500 company to a first year graduate student. And uh, that was a, a marvelous shift in social status. Uh, there was one cocktail party I can remember now where it's very common in Silicon Valley when you meet somebody, the first question you ask is, what do you do? Uh, and indeed, your identity is really wrapped first and foremost around your work. Um, and so when I explained to the same people I had been engaging with for years that I was now a, a graduate student in a PhD program, this person literally turned and went to the opposite side of the room. <laughs> not even a, not even a really, or you're kidding, or are you crazy? Just, just physically stop the conversation. So uh, that was a powerful moment. I remember. You have no idea how much I can relate to that, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so I'm in the mid nineties, the internet is happening while I'm in the PhD program at Berkeley. So uh, it was a wonderful time because you could feel the world changing around you. Uh, and yet I was also in a program that was uh, really encouraged uh, study and reflection and gave me a, a much uh, deeper set of tools to think about all of these changes. Um, but I have to confess that I started with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because uh, I'd been successful. I had uh, some money, I had some stock, 
Uh, and uh, these professors, you know, who were they? What did they know? Um, and uh, what I realized after about a year of this was uh, that was a, a terrible attitude if you wanna learn anything. If you think you already know it all, you're not gonna learn a damn thing. Uh, so I got over myself and I got that chip off of my shoulder and uh, got through the, the PhD program. And when I graduated, I went to Harvard uh, in their business school. And this was the one separation uh, from my time in California. I went to Harvard Business School for six years, the West Point of capitalism, as they like to say. I was one of 35 uh, professors they'd hired right out of PhD programs that year. Six years later, when I left, there was only one of the 35 left. So it was truly an upper out system, but nonetheless, a wonderful environment, uh, you know, bountiful research funding, really deep commitment to teaching and particularly teaching with the case method. And they really had teaching group meetings where you would literally be tr trained on how to do it. And people would come and sit in your class and observe it and give you feedback after the class on how well you did it. So th this level of investment and support was really remarkable and quite effective. Um, but I was not smart enough to stay at Harvard. So in 2003, this was a pivotal year for me. My book, Open Innovation, came out. I got kicked out of Harvard and had to leave and went to Berkeley. Uh, and I've been at Berkeley ever since. And uh, my work really to this day, I think, tries to be engaging and interesting to managers while still being rigorous and well done for my academic colleagues. Um, so that, I think, is what brings me to being with you guys here today. Awesome. You know, I, I right away want to go a little bit off script because I can't wait to talk to you about open innovation. But um, I'm, I'm always interested in this jump from the business world to the academic world, maybe back again. It's a journey that I'm in the process of going through right now. And I think I probably have had some of the same feelings and emotions that you went through. Would you say that your business experience uh, helped you in your academic career, vice versa? Like, is there a lot of crossover? Did you find a real, was this a real kind of turning point where your skill sets and your learnings were uh, profoundly different? Huh. Um, well, I want, I want to get Dries's thought on this too, because he knows me pretty well. Um, I'm not a typical academic. So for that reason, uh, I want to say, yes, it's been very helpful. The truth is it has marked me uh, and made me good at some things and maybe not as good at other things. So uh, like many things, there's some trade-offs there. It's not all hearts and flowers. Um, on the other hand, I would do it all again. I would not, uh, I don't regret any of what I've done in this regard. And, uh, I still really enjoy what I do, and uh, I've now been at it quite a long time, and I feel very fortunate that I can say that. But would you would you argue that before people do a PhD, they should have worked in the in the real life? Because, for instance, in Europe, it's very normal that you do a master and immediately do a PhD and then go into the academic career and that you have never worked in real life. And to be honest, I'm an example of that trajectory. And so. 
sometimes when I do executive education, people are honestly saying, yeah, what, what can you tell us? Because you have never experienced what you're talking about. Right. And I, I do some executive education too, Dries, and managers can tell when I, when I talk to them, they can tell within a minute or two that I used to be a manager as well. They, they can sense it. Um, and in executive education classes, that's always a positive. Um, but with PhD students, on the other hand, um, they're a little more skeptical. They're kind of wanting to challenge. So, what are you? What are your thoughts? You know, what are the concepts? What are the? What's the evidence for these concepts? Uh, give me the justification and the foundation. And these are things that uh, in industry you don't directly probe as much. Yeah. Um, so there are there are differences, and so I have different. Uh, For some groups, uh, I'm immediately accepted. With other groups, I have to kind of prove myself a little bit. So, so Henry, you're you know you are well known and recognized for kind of coining the concept and the term of open innovation. Um, you know your your 2003 book, I think, is a seminal book on this topic. Can you share for our audience that may not? may not have been exposed to that term, really what it means uh, in concept and in practice? Yeah, sure. Um, Eskimos have lots of words for snow. And it turns out that open is another one of these words that has a number of meanings. And open innovation itself has a variety of meanings. What I mean by it is a model, a distributed model of innovation that involves flows of knowledge across organizational boundaries, both from the outside into the organization and from the inside of the organization out into the surrounding environment for both monetary and non-monetary purposes. So that's what I mean by it. Could you give us an example of that? Sorry, I didn't mean to, to cut you off. Like. Um... I know in some of your papers, you, you talk about some pretty interesting examples. Um, could you maybe share like a, a classic example of how that, how that works in practice? Sure, and we were talking earlier about me coming from industry. I think one of the things that this has given me is I think I have a skill in being able to access and then extract uh, really interesting information from companies. Um, and it's not that other academics uh, couldn't do it, but it may be harder for them to get access or when they're having the conversation, the, the conversation may take different turns than it would if, if I'm talking to them. So uh, an example that uh, is, uh, I think, still very relevant and powerful to me is that with Xerox Corporation. And in particular, their Palo Alto Research Center in Palo Alto, California. I spent two years there studying these wonderful technologies that were in the research labs of Xerox. And uh, some of them that connected with the copier and printer businesses of Xerox went on to become very valuable contributions to the company. But many other technologies became the basis for entirely new companies uh, like 3Com or Adobe or Documentum VLSI technologies, and all of these spin-offs, the technology originated in the Xerox lab, but was essentially stuck and wasn't going forward and didn't have any path to market 
because it didn't really help them make copiers and printers faster, better, cheaper, and so on. Um, so this connection between the innovation engine and the business model really uh, was astonishing there. And in uh, when I tracked 35 internal projects at Xerox, uh, I started tracking them when the internal funding was cut. And then I said, so what happened after that for these 35 individual projects? Uh, and in most of the cases, they were not successful. Uh, when they went outside to others, they were able to raise some money. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to observe them, but they were not financially successful uh, activities. But 10 of the 35 became publicly traded companies. And if I add up the market value of those companies, uh, it was greater than the market value of Xerox, uh, the mothership from which they came. So this is, to me, a very powerful, motivating example uh, uh, in, in the beginning, I didn't call it open innovation. I wasn't sure what to call it, but I knew it was a phenomenal observation of something that uh, Michael Porter would have had a hard time explaining. So uh, I, I've come to really appreciate what I think of as anomalies in research, where something that I know from my observations and discussions of companies, something's happening in practice, and theoretically, it's really hard to explain it with the theories that we currently use. So that's when I got really excited about it and started thinking about and making sense of these patterns. And that's where the book uh, originated in 2003. In that, in that example, you, know, you, you mentioned that 10 of the 35 companies you know, became hugely successful. Did that actually benefit the mothership that was you know, responsible for a lot of the innovation in the first place? Or was that just a, a loss of R&D that somebody else found a way to commercialize? So I actually have a paper on this very question. And uh, the answer is that Xerox's management of this took place in four phases. Uh, in the first phase, uh, it was really just uh, accidental. Uh, they wanted to cut the projects. They wanted to move the staff out of there so they could get those recs and hire new staff to work on the things that were core to Xerox. And Xerox just assumed that, you know, we don't see the value. We don't think anybody else will either. And so these projects were just cut loose. Um, so they, the first round of, I think, of the 35 projects that I studied, I think uh, five or six of them were in this first phase. And, uh, you know, the success that they had was astonishing to the people at Xerox. They never saw it coming. So that gave rise to a second phase, where in the second phase, uh, Xerox starts uh, investing alongside these uh, and taking some equity for the intellectual property and so on. Um, and then in the third phase, they actually create an internal corporate venture capital activity to go through the labs of Xerox and try to identify and then capitalize those things so they could, if you, if you can't beat them, fund them. So that was the third phase. Uh, and in the fourth phase, they unwound the uh, venture capital fund and uh, then they created kind of an incubator accelerator to, to do it instead. So they went through four phases. <coughs> Xerox did get some value from some of it. Um, but in all cases, it was managed not by R&D, 
not by business strategy, um, not by the CEO, but it was all managed by finance. And so because of that, they were using it to do things like smooth quarterly earnings reports. So they might take some gains in a quarter where they needed a little more income, or they might uh, defer. If they were having a really good uh, quarter, they would just hold off uh, and do it later. Um, so they weren't actually trying to maximize the value uh, over time. They were much more tactical uh, in their management of it. And it was, as I said, it was all driven by the finance office rather than by some larger uh, strategic uh, imperative. That's a really, you know, interesting understanding those different phases. And I want to pull from an episode we had a few weeks ago. We had Steve Blank on. And Steve was talking about, we talked about innovation theater and the need for organizational ambidexterity and how, you know, many of these large companies are trying to innovate and they're doing the, doing all these different phases, um, but they're very rarely affecting their bottom line in the end because it's not their core the core function of the business. And I would assume when finance is making those decisions, their core their core objective is maybe not innovation itself, but other types of benefits like smoothing out the, the PL or you know improving shareholder value per, per quarter. Did you find any of those different phases to be more successful? So yeah, the, uh, the corporate venture capital phase, uh, it was called Xerox Technology Ventures. They started with a pool of $30 million in 1989. And by 1996, that $30 million had grown to $220 million. So, uh, a, you know, I think it was like a 30% annual return. And if you say, well, is that, how good is that? If you compared it to other 1989 venture capital funds that were started that year, it was in the, the top quarter of all the venture capital funds that year. So tremendous financial performance. And do you know so that? naturally Xerox shut it down. <laughs> right. Now, why would they do that? Um, you know, you've just made a lot of money. Any venture capitalist with that track record would use that to go out and raise a larger fund and double down and do, do more of it. Uh, and the reason they did that was the compensation that was set up by Robert Adams, the guy who was the founder or, and the organizer of Xerox Technology Ventures, he and his two partners got 20% of the gains and Xerox got 80%. So going from 30 to 220 million meant hundreds of millions of dollars for Xerox, but it meant tens of millions to Adams and his two partners. And this resulted in them getting more money a lot more money than the CEO of the company. And this drove the HR people completely nuts. Uh, and I think it also offended the CEO and the others. And so it was so corrosive that they made the judgment that it's just not worth it to uh, have these people paid so well. Uh, and that's when they set up their incubator instead. Um, you know, well, let's, let's do it ourselves, but not with venture capital. We'll just, you know, use our assets and resources and skills and nurture these companies. Um, and I'm sad to report that the incubator was a terrible failure. So um, 
you know, it's a little bit like having a really, really successful salesperson on a quota. You know, when that salesperson blows out the quota, they get paid a big commission check. Uh, is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Now, what they do in the, in the sales world is you, you pay them out and then you reset the quota a lot higher next year. So uh, that, that's the way we handle that one. But with the, the corporate venture capital, uh, that's, that's an issue that exists in corporate venture capital programs everywhere. Do you compensate the partners like venture capital partners with carried interest? Or do you compensate them with salary and bonus like we do all of our senior managers, in which case it's much more like the incubator? Yeah, actually in Germany, it's often that because of union legislation and stuff like that, nobody is allowed to earn more than the CEO. So it's, it's even legally not possible, which, which is a big problem for a lot of German corporates that want to do CVC because it's just immensely restricting the financial incentives that you can give. Well, and you can see from the corporation's perspective, really making a lot of money with a couple of people and pissing off everybody else in the company, you, you can yeah. see how that's, that's a hard balance to strike. Yeah. So back to Steve Blank's idea, you know, in, in Steve Blank's world, of course you pay these guys. Of course they have, they're taking a huge amount of risk and if they don't perform, they don't make anything. So the only reason they got the payments they got is they earned it. Uh, but Steve is in, in all of his career, and he's done a number of interesting things in his career, which you now have in your podcast, he's never stayed in a large company for very long ever. And so I don't think he particularly values or uh, cares about uh, the large corporation and the constraints that they labor under. Maybe to go back to, to open innovation, we, we interview often founders on this podcast, and then we always ask, what has been your drive to create this company? And we actually never do that with academics. So I actually would like to know, what was your kind of personal drive to focus on open innovation and why not another topic? Yeah, so I guess, Dries, I would say that uh, when I graduated from Berkeley in 97 and went to Harvard, um, I was learning about teaching case studies. Uh, at that time, Harvard really cared about having its faculty research case studies, and Harvard had phenomenal access. And it was through a professor named Dick Rosenblum that I was uh, connected to Xerox. So uh, that part was going on, and I was you know, just having these interviews and discussions and seeing these amazing patterns that were coming out of the, the research data. But I was also doing other papers uh, on other topics. I was publishing things out of my dissertation, which was actually uh, looking at Clayton Christensen's disruptive technology in the hard disk drive industry, but I was looking at it in Japan and Europe rather than in the US. And even though the same technology transitions took place, uh, the organizational response was completely different, uh, particularly in Japan, where all the same companies transitioned all the different generations of disk drive sizes successfully uh, in a way that was not true in the US. So I'm doing a number of these different things. I'm publishing out of my dissertation. I'm doing this new research. Um, and then I find out from Harvard that I've got to leave, that I'm getting kicked out. And that was a really searing moment for me because I'd left industry to go back to get yeah. a PhD. I'd invested five years of my life to get a PhD. 
I get my first academic job and now I've got to leave. Now, I was not the only one. As I said, I was one of 34 out of 35, but still it was a very difficult blow to absorb. And it, was, it came as a real surprise to me. Uh, and I wasn't really sure which way to go. Do I stay focused on the, the very rigorous, careful academic studies that I was trying to do and having some success getting published, but only some, uh, and then, uh, or do I follow these things that are just really interesting and cool, but I'm not sure, you, how do you publish a paper on open innovation in 2003? Um, you know, how do you, how do you falsify that? How do you prove that? Uh, so uh, I had to make a choice. And one of the things that I'm very, proud of, uh, as I look back, is I, I did the more risky, more entrepreneurial thing, which is I, I went with my gut and said, I think these patterns are really interesting. And even though we don't have a, a language to talk about it yet, I think it's important and it needs to be, uh, it needs to be studied, it needs to be written up and published. Yeah. And so uh, I took that path and I, I went to Berkeley and, uh, and it's, it's worked out great, uh, but I, I had no way of knowing that in advance. It was, it was a big risk and uh, it, it could have ended in tears. Yeah, great. And maybe when I talk with, especially with practitioners about open innovation, I often notice that, they, that there is some confusion about the distinction between open innovation and open source. Uh, how do you see that? Is, is open innovation, does it inherently mean that you give away your IP, that you open up your IP portfolio, or, or is it in a different way that we have to see that distinction? Yeah, when I, this comes up a lot, as you might imagine. No. Um, and it, even uh, it was compounded, I think, in 2005 when Eric von Hippel, uh, who's done a lot of excellent work on user innovation uh, and open source software, um, as an example of user innovation, uh, he published a book in 2005 called Democratizing Innovation and used the term open innovation, the same words, to refer to this free and open software approach. So uh, even though he knew about me and my book, and I actually went to his seminar for many, many weeks uh, when I was at Harvard and he was at MIT, um, he, he did that and I think that added to the confusion. So it's, there's an industry confusion and there's even an academic confusion. So, um, and it, it turns out when I looked into it, if you look in open source software, that confusion is paralleled there. There's a guy named Richard Stallman who's best known uh, for free software and, uh, or for GNU and copyleft and policies that anything that you work on in open source must remain open. Uh, and the copyrights that are used uh, require anything that builds on it to itself be kept open. So that would be sort of the free branch of open source. And then people like uh, Linus Torvalds and others are on the open branch where you can definitely put things into open source and you can uh, draw from it but you are allowed uh, to make uh, enhancements that you keep private. Uh, and so you can, if you choose to, you can fork the code 
uh, to do other things. So, you know, Amazon's Kindle is a good example that rests on the Linux software, but Amazon has done its own fork of that. Um, so uh, Richard Stallman and Linus Torvalds actually had debates in the early 2000s about which was the better way to go. And in open innovation, uh, Eric is kind of the Richard Stallman in this debate, and I'm the Linus Torvalds in this debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so th this confusion goes quite deep, uh, even into the into open source itself. Is uh, uh, so I think that's interesting. What we can say for sure for entrepreneurs about open source is that open source has dramatically lowered the cost of starting a business, and it's accelerated the time it takes to get working code because you can do a lot building on top of what's been done before. Um, so that has been, it's been really good for entrepreneurs to, to get things started. And then you ask, well, gee, well, how do you make any money if you're building on things that everybody has access to? Uh, and the answer is you can still make money. You don't make money at that layer. You make money up the stack and doing in the things that you're doing that do differentiate you. Um, and then in the open source area, we've had some interesting events like GitHub and Red Hat being acquired by Microsoft and IBM respectively for 7 billion in the one case, 34 billion in the other case. And a study I haven't seen is when these events happened, the organizers of GitHub and Red Hat became very wealthy people. And how did that change the attitude of the communities that supported them. Because most people that contributed to GitHub and most people that contributed to the code that Red Hat ships, they got nothing financially from these events. And so if we're all in it together and we're all contributing as volunteers and users, that's fine. But suddenly when a few people get cashed out in a big way, what does that do to the community? You know, it's a little bit like the corporate venture capital example with Xerox we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. Suddenly, a few people have gotten a lot of money. And instead of us all being in it together, there's insiders and then there's outsiders. And most of us are outsiders. How do we feel about that? And I haven't seen that study done yet. So I, I think that's something that, uh, and, I, and these ideas around business models for open source software, um, we're seeing that now too. Because uh, people who saw these events are trying to do it for their little part of open source. So there's some really interesting uh, areas to look at uh, in those areas as well. I'd like to ask you a question kind of putting this open source versus open innovation uh, kind of how they're a little bit opposed to one another, but put it in the context of right now, because I think we've got we've been seeing this process unfold with the COVID vaccination, right? Where, you know, the, the genome was mapped, it was made available to the world, and then we saw all of these different uh, organizations and entities working together to, to, to find a vaccine. Um, obviously, one of them really well known is the US-German partnership with BioNTech and, and Pfizer, right? Um, is, is that an example of open source, or is this an example of open innovation, or both? I would argue it's definitely open innovation um, because if we look at the far, big pharma companies like Pfizer, if we were to go back in a time machine 20 years ago, uh, most of the pipeline that Pfizer was bringing to market 
came from inside its own laboratories. And the journey from the lab to the market took place inside the four walls of one organization. You still had to go through all the steps, but they were all done, most of them by that one company. It's essentially a model of vertical integration, um, which is in my mind, if you think about what is open innovation not, it's the antithesis of vertical integration. <clears throat> so <clears throat> in that regard, there's a lot of commonality with open source that we think all of us know more than any one of us. And there's a lot of generativity uh, in bringing things from outside uh, into the organization. And there can be other kinds of generativity from letting things go from the inside out to other organizations, like with Xerox and those spinoffs I was telling you about a little while ago. So back to uh, the vaccines. So we have this COVID uh, crisis. It gets sequenced quite rapidly. And that uh, characterization, that sequencing was widely shared throughout the scientific community. And this is an exponentially growing disease, uh, which means that time is not your friend. The longer it takes to come up with treatments, the more people are going to die. So uh, people uh, really mobilized. And most of the pharma companies, not all, but most of them uh, partnered with young biotechs uh, or academic researchers. So AstraZeneca worked with Oxford's uh, scientists at the University of Oxford. Um, and they did this because they saw that as the fastest way to get uh, an answer. And most of the compounds that have been developed were repurposed from other applications. They were not created de novo uh, for COVID. They were rather created initially for some other use uh, and then were repurposed. Once they saw the sequencing, they said, ah, this could work here too. Uh, and so they could start not at the very beginning, but they could start kind of in the middle where there had already been a, some characterization, maybe some animal trials, uh, some modeling work done. Uh, and then it's a race in the face of an exponentially growing disease so that's why I see it as, a, as an example of open innovation. I, I want to put uh, on back to, so back to open source, there's a lot of IP here. Mm -hmm. um, these things are not being shared um, for free. Um, and it's cost you know many billions of dollars to do the development, the production, the clinical trials, et cetera. And so uh, it would have been a mistake to try to make it for free because all this money had to be invested. And I think there are more than 50 candidates uh, that are in this race. So it's not like you know, picking the winners at the outset and just letting them do it. Uh, it's a, a, a real market competition with dozens and dozens of contestants, all of whom are investing a lot of money to try to win the race. And socially, we want that diversity. We want there to be a lot of uh, attempts because we don't know in advance which ones are really gonna work. These mRNA vaccines, for example, are a very new methodology. And so a lot of reasons to think it might work, but it was fairly uh, theoretical uh, until, uh, so we didn't know for sure. And uh, socially, you wouldn't bet on that in advance. Uh, you'd want some traditional methods, you'd want some new methods, and so on. So that's what's happened here. Uh, but it wouldn't have happened without IP. 
So it sounds to me, though, that when the initial Chinese researchers kind of put out the sequencing, that that was kind of an open source of that data that allowed open innovation to happen on top of it with the technologies and the horsepower of those big biotech companies driving it. That, Definitely, that, Garrett. Yeah. I would say that, uh, and this gets to something that's, I think, really important, uh, and that is open science. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, science has been pretty open for a long time. You know, the first, uh, I think, royal journals of scientific discovery came from the 17th century. Uh, and people would you know, do their studies and report to each other, and then they would publish these in these scientific journals. Uh, and so these were the first conduits for this knowledge to get out to the world. Uh, and now, you know, the scientific community is very deeply connected. There are a lot of, like there's the Public Library of Science. There are other journals now that even before it's published, um, you can see what, what's in the pipeline, so to speak. Uh, so this I think is all really positive, um, but open science alone is not going to get you to commercialization. You, you, you need both steps. You, you need broad investigation of the underlying phenomena and a, a deep understanding of what's going on there. And then selectively, you've got to make some bets as to, okay, now what, what are we going to bet on that's actually going to work in a reasonable period of time for something that we can you know, get paid for? So one of the projects I'm involved with uh, is at CERN. Uh, in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, and they have this phenomenal Large Hadron Collider, tens of billions of euros, literally in the ground, um, and a, a marvelous open science community of, uh, I think, more than 10,000 researchers that uh, come and go uh, from CERN. And there's no IP in any of that. It's all truly open science. The paper that got the Nobel Prize I think had 3,000 co-authors, uh, so very, very open. But now uh, they've completed their experiments for searching for these particles, the things they were designed to do. So now CERN has to ask, what do we do with this facility and these people now? And one of the thoughts and some funding from the European Commission is to try to find ways to commercialize some of these technologies uh, for say software or imaging uh, or materials and things. Because a lot of very interesting things had to be done to build the facility. And could some of this become the basis for new companies, new, new businesses? Uh, well, now to do that, we're gonna have to make some bets and we're gonna have to make some investments. We're going to need some IP to do the commercialization step out of CERN. So I think you can see there how they don't, they're not against each other. Uh, they, they really, I think, can be very complementary to each other. So if I'm understanding correctly, then, then open innovation doesn't necessarily have to be uh, one company to another company. It could also be a government or a peri-governmental organization to the private sector. Would that still qualify in that context then? Yeah, and in yeah. fact, the program that uh, I'm involved with is called ATTRACT. And the, the main idea in the ATTRACT program is to give two years of funding to the principal investigators to allow them to build prototypes and proofs of concept for possible commercial uses without requiring them to uh, give up 
the uh, ownership of the intellectual property so that they can uh, make it more commercially ready uh, with this funding. And the investors don't have to take that level of risk. They can see something that has been somewhat de-risked before deciding to invest. And so that's a program that's across you know, a wide range of activities, people, and projects. Because like, you know, I'm thinking of NASA and SpaceX or the Department of Defense and Lockheed Martin and these you know, more governmental organizations leveraging maybe the, the speed and the power of the more upstart organizations. So in some cases, it's not necessarily the larger mothership that benefits the most, right? It could be, it could be maybe the smaller entity in the relationship. Yeah, right. And NASA has done something cool with us here at Berkeley. They've given us permission to look at all of their patents and see if we can find other ways to use them. Um, so uh, they've got a lot of patents, but it was all done for a fairly narrow set of applications around manned spaceflight. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Tang is still uh, available, but there are a lot of things that have spun out of the space program and NASA knows that. So now they're trying to actively encourage this uh, and bringing more eyes uh, to their patents to see uh, how they might be used. So we actually teach classes with our students now where we share these with them. And then we give our students some training in how to think about different ways of uh, how these might be used. And some of Steve Blank's lean startup comes into play too. Because uh, if you can find a customer that needs it uh, and they're willing to pay for it um, and NASA's got something that helps that, well then now there's a, an easier path to make that possible. And in that kind of activity, so if you think about a bit the other way around, huh? so I think in your book, you have mainly focused on corporates and how they can benefit from open innovation. So if you turn it a bit the other way around, how would you say that startups can benefit from open innovation? Yeah, and that's exactly the right question, Dries, because, uh, and this is, I think, where academics uh, comes into its, uh, strong, into its sweet spot, because uh, we're good at taking a problem and then looking at it from different angles. Uh, and indeed, if, if, it's, if it doesn't work for the startups, then uh, it's purely exploitive by the corporates and it's gonna yeah. burn itself out. Yeah. And I, I actually don't believe that it is exploitive. I believe it really can be beneficial, but let's look at it from the startup point of view. Um, if you are a startup and you've got something kind of cool, let's say, um, you can of course do business on your own, but you're starved for capital. Uh, customers don't know who you are. It it's, takes time and money to sell to customers and acquire new customers. Um, it's very, very hard to scale. So there are a lot of things that startups have to, to deal with as they're trying to do business. What open innovation offers to startups is you can find partners who have some of what you need and they've already done it. So if you're BioNTech, uh, and Pfizer comes to you with the idea of let's take this messenger RNA technology and use it for COVID uh, and we'll help you uh, do the production, we'll organize the clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, BioNTech says, wow, we can get to market much faster at much bigger scale, uh, teaming up with Pfizer than we could if we tried to do this on our own. Mm. Um, so the startups, I think, but you have to be careful as a startup because you don't want to give it all away for free to the yeah. corporate. Yeah. Um, you have to make sure that you get something beneficial to you from this as well. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, so you have to be thoughtful about that. And every, every entrepreneur I know gets this immediately. There's, there's no mystery there. They, they know that they have to guard and protect what they have from the corporate, but they also see the benefit of working with the corporate. So how do we get past this? And my advice to the entrepreneur is to create a public shareable version of what you're doing and a private version that you share only with your investors and key employees, uh, but you don't share it uh, with the corporate. So sharing what you do um, is uh, a very good thing to share. So the corporate can assess if it's helpful and how it might fit in with their plans. Sharing how you do it in detail is a good example of something to keep to yourself. Uh, so this division between public and private, shareable, not shared, um, I think are ways to help uh, lubricate the coordination between the startup and the corporate. I think it's interesting because if I talk in Germany here a lot with people that are involved in collaboration between startups and companies, to be honest, the word that, that is mentioned the most is trust. They're just saying, yeah, you need to trust each other. That's the magical ingredients. But if I hear you, it's not about trust. It's about smartly designing the collaboration, making sure that you are not giving away the, the diamonds in your product. So that does not seem to be really about trust. It's more about smartly designing the collaboration. Well, I think trust is important, but trust also has to be earned on both sides. The corporate needs to trust that you can do what you say you can do uh, and that you will prioritize their work and deliver it on the schedules that you agree to. Uh, and those are all things that are not given. They have to be demonstrated. Uh, and then on the startup side, you have to be, you have to trust that if you do what you say you're going to do, the corporation will do what it will said it will do. Uh, and then the market will tell us if it actually gets rewarded or not. Uh, and one example from my own career back in industry before I became a professor really uh, fits well here. Uh, I was in the disk drive industry and we were looking for a Japanese manufacturing partner for a new smaller sized disk drive that needed a lot of miniaturization. And particularly in the manufacturing of it, it was gonna take a lot of specific tooling and equipment to do this very precise assembly. So we did a, a trip to Japan, talked to a lot of Japanese companies and selected two finalists, uh, Kyocera and Matsusta. And uh, I think we, uh, we chose Matsusta. And the reason we did was both companies had very, very strong manufacturing capability. But Kyocera, all of their products were sold under the Kyocera brand. And for Matsusta, much of what they built was sold under the brands of other companies and had been done that way for many years. So we did not want to be a supplier to Kyocera. We wanted to be selling this as our own brand. Uh, 
and we wanted the manufacturer to be an OEM partner. Matshusta was doing this in a number of areas already with other companies. Kyocera had never done that uh, with other companies. So that's a case where whatever we're told by the two companies, it's smarter, I think, to say, hmm, Matshusta's got a, a track record and a business model that's built around doing it. Kyocera doesn't. So best to go with Matshusta. So there still is a lot of trust involved. We co-located, we worked together for years on it. Well, there was a lot of trust, but there was also calculation and strategy along the way. Yeah. And do you think that most startups have sufficient, that kind of calculative mind? Or sometimes I have the feeling that they might be a bit naive in that respect, that they say, okay, as long as I have a good relationship, it will go well. And then they might be a bit surprised about the, the hard business life uh, that might hit them. I think you're right about that. I think the startups also, though, uh, often know other entrepreneurs that are working with these companies. No. And so to be uh, a little blunt about it, if the large company really screws an entrepreneur, uh, that entrepreneur is going to tell everyone they know. Uh, and so you can get a reputation as a large company for being not trustworthy. Yeah. And uh, once you get that reputation, the opportunities you're going to see in the future are going to be fewer and of lower quality than what your competitors who are more trustworthy, they're gonna see better opportunities and they're gonna see more of them. So you can actually get, be competitively disadvantaged by being untrustworthy. Uh, so I think there is some help for the entrepreneurs because of the networks they have and the, the information that they share with each other. You know, as someone who's built a, my first venture back startup was an enterprise SaaS. And, you know, you really, you know, all of our clients were Fortune 100 clients. You really feel like you're at the mercy of of those large companies, the power dynamic is so profound, right? That they're gonna set the terms, they're gonna drive whatever the deal is. The only real leverage you feel like you have is that if you don't take it, we're going to the competitors, right? So I think there is a little bit of a natural balance in play if the value proposition is compelling enough to the to the bigger company, right? But it, to me, it doesn't seem like this strategic game so much. There, I think the system is somewhat in place, whether it's reputational or it's more competitive in nature, there are disadvantages to the big companies. At least that's, that's perhaps what I experienced. Yeah. 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 Really interesting. Um, I want to just pivot here and ask you, Let's turn this really fascinating concept where we've talked about it in so many positives around open innovation. Can you share like the dark side? What what are there drawbacks or examples where this can go really wrong for either of the stakeholders in the process? Sure. Um, and uh, some of what I'm going to share here is laid out in chapter eight of my most recent book called Open Innovation Results, uh, where I look at failure cases. And this is one of the things that I have been admonishing many of my academic colleagues is that uh, we, do, we, love, we love innovation, me too. Um, and it's exciting, it's fun, but it doesn't always work. Uh, there are failures. It's harder to get companies to talk about the failures. 
Uh, and that's one reason why uh, we don't study them as much. It's much harder to get access, uh, but it's really valuable um, to, to do it. And it also clarifies conceptually, what are the limits or the boundary conditions that are involved here uh, for this to work well? So, um, I, so I've got a chapter full of these things. I don't have time to give you all of them now. Let me pick a couple to share with you. Uh, there was a startup company called Quirky that uh, had a model of crowdsourcing ideas for new consumer products. And if your idea was selected, they had a team of people that would then take the idea and do the engineering needed to turn it into a consumer product. And they would pay you royalties for your idea. And they would also provide small additional royalty payments to others who helped to improve the idea after it was submitted. So it was very much based on crowdsourcing, on a community, uh, sharing the profits, uh, taking on the tasks to turn it into a product. So a lot of the ideas that we have as consumers, we're not ourselves able to, to manufacture them. So this was a company that was built on this idea. Uh, and they raised $170 million in venture capital. They had a corporate partnership with GE, who not only helped with some of the manufacturing, but also allowed them to sell under the GE brand and some of the distribution outlets, et cetera. So they did a lot of things right. And Ben Kaufman was the CEO and a, you know, really a good, effective evangelist for this. Um, but the company went bankrupt. And so you think, hmm, if open innovation is so great and if crowds have all this wonderful knowledge uh, and we had all this money, we had leadership from the very top of the company that was a true believer in it, uh, how did it go bankrupt? So that's a wonderful failure case. And it, people in the academic community know about it, but no one has written about it. It's fascinating that we don't choose, no, no one has studied it and therefore, our young students, the MBAs and the PhDs, they don't know about it because this happened back in 2015 now and, that, and that's dog years in, in innovation world. So uh, it's, it's fading from memory. So where did it go wrong? Well, uh, and it points out some of the limits of open innovation. Uh, one thing is that uh, in consumer products, it's kind of a hit driven business you need to have a continuing stream of good products. And there were some hits for Quirky, but there were a lot of misses. And uh, they were not filtering enough uh, on, the, on the misses. They were investing too much in, in the bad things. And they were not getting enough of the hits, the, the really high success products as well. So, the, and this, I think, is true of crowds in general. There are a few really good ideas that come from crowds, and much of what they provide, quite honestly, is crap. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to be really thoughtful about the filtering uh, when you do that. So that was one problem. Um, another problem was Quirky did not have a business model where they were looking for <clears throat> just any consumer product. Well, that's awfully broad. Uh, I can't think of another uh, company uh, manufacturing products that doesn't have a focus uh, in particular areas. And so Quirky lacked this focus. So they were probably trying to be too many things to too many people and not focused enough 
uh, in what they were doing. So that's a fascinating one. And then the other example I'll share with you comes from a big, big corporate, uh, Procter & Gamble. And this one is fun because people like me talked about Procter & Gamble a lot in the 2000s as a very good example of open innovation done well. Uh, and indeed in the, in the 2000s, they were growing nicely and they were doing a, a fair amount of the growth because of what they called connect and develop, which was really the outside in branch of open innovation. Um, and the, the CEO himself, uh, a guy named A.G. Lafley, wrote a book in 2008 about his innovation process at P&G. So uh, this was, you know, as good as it gets. He, he retired in glory and the stock had gone way up. What's fascinating was when I was writing this book that got published last year, um, I went back to P&G and the last 10 years have not been nearly as positive as the previous 10 years. So we rightly celebrated them in the 2000s, but then we sort of lost interest or attention. And in fact, the last 10 years have been a real struggle for Procter & Gamble. So if you think about this from an open innovation standpoint, one of the exemplars, one of the companies doing it the best that we were always using as a good example, suddenly, the last 10 years, their revenues have been going down, not up. They're not getting growth and profits from it anymore. And they had all the processes. They had all the people and the training and all the rest. You know, what happened? How did they lose the formula? And so that, that's, uh, I have some fun with that in the book. And uh, again, my, my academic colleagues, the ones who pay attention know this but no one's written about it. Um, so it's, uh, I think sometimes uh, in academia, we have our own kind of myopia where uh, there's nothing like a good story. And we all love the story of, uh, you know, the, the open story uh, that of how things rise and succeed. And then all too often, we're looking for the next story to tell like that. Uh, well, if we follow it through, there's a dark side. And in the case of PNG, a lot of the people that were driving these programs, they're retired. Uh, not just the CEO, but all the, the leadership underneath him. Uh, and then the new CEO had different priorities. Uh, and so suddenly the focus shifted to these new priorities. Uh, and even though they still had the same processes, they didn't have the same leadership and they didn't have the same mindset uh, that they had in the 2000s. They also made a big acquisition and I think the big acquisition absorbed a lot of their attention and they had some trouble with the acquisition, integrating it into the company. Uh, and so I think that was a factor that really distracted people as well. So uh, even, even when you do well and you, you master it, uh, that's not a guarantee that you're gonna hold on to it for the long term. So uh, that's, I think a little, uh, uh, um, well, it, it makes you think. Uh, about what we do as business professors, when you get somebody to a level of mastery, we sort of think they live happily ever after. And uh, that's not always true. And I was triggered by the word mindset. So if, if you reflect on what, what is the mindset that people need to be good in open innovation, do you have any ideas about that? What kind of mindset people need? Yeah, I, I do. In fact, uh, in the 
the way I close this chapter that of with all these failures uh, is very much, Dries, about the mindset. And I put uh, in I have a, sort of a two-sided column. You know, one side is sort of the closed attitudes and mindset and the opposite number, the open ones. So you can sort of see how they contrast. Uh, and, and the argument I make is that individual practices will be copied and will disseminate to everyone, including your competitors. So they are not going to be the source of continuing advantage. You're going to have to continue to innovate and improve in order to stay ahead. And that's why the mindset is so important because anyone can copy the individual practices. And indeed, I think in the case of P&G, a lot of people studied them and did copy them in the consumer products area. Um, and then unfortunately for P&G, activist investors started uh, looking at the company and its underperformance in the mid 2010s. Uh, and then they really began driving for short-term profit improvement and they really cut a lot of the innovation investment and innovation infrastructure that was sustaining uh, the gains that P&G had made. So uh, the mindset of an activist investor, unfortunately, is often uh, antithetical to the mindset we want for medium and long-term uh, innovation success. You know, this, for me, for a guy that comes from startup world, this has felt like a masterclass. I, I could... <laughs> I could spend another couple of hours of just uh, absorbing so much knowledge here, but uh, I think we're all pressed for time a little bit. Um, I'd like to kind of wrap things up with a few questions that I ask all of our guests. And um, it's always nice to start these episodes learning a little bit about our guests. I like to wrap things up that way too. And, you know, normally I ask entrepreneurs, what have they learned on their entrepreneurial journey that they wish they could tell their younger self? But I want to reframe that a little bit for you because you've had this unique experience where you had a very successful career in the private sector and then you went on it to your academic pursuits. What you have learned since you left uh, Silicon Valley and, and went into academia, what have you learned that you wish you could, have, you could tell your younger self as a young manager in your business career? I think one thing I've learned is to, to bet on myself and to believe in myself. Obviously, you know, do my homework, you know, do some testing, check in, validate, but, uh, but believe in myself. Uh, that moment when I had to leave Harvard and I had to choose, do I take the time to write this book, which is going to mean some period of time where I'm not going to be publishing as many articles, um, and that's going to be negative for me academically. Uh, is that is that the right way to go? And the answer, in hindsight, was absolutely yes. Uh, it, and the world is better, I think, for me doing that versus uh, writing some more uh, very carefully done academic studies. That sadly, uh, when I look back on all the things out of my dissertation, the citation counts to my research there, which are in good innovation journals, uh, it's, it's maybe a few hundred, and this is you know 20 years after the fact. Whereas now with uh, on Google Scholar, I'm up over 85,000 citations, but most of those citations have come from the work I did uh, with open innovation and things that grew out of that. Um, 
and uh, if I had limited myself to only the academic articles, uh, it would have been a very different path. Taking, it's not so often you hear someone say, hey, I went into the academic world and I started taking bigger risks, but it sounds like your risk profile uh, maybe got a little bit bigger in, in that experience. That's really cool. Um, After getting some very difficult feedback. <laughs> sure, sure, I can imagine. <laughs> All right, just a couple rapid fire questions to wrap things up again uh, that we ask everybody. Um, I've learned over the years that you can learn so much about a person um, by the books on their bookshelf. Is there a particular book you're reading or one that you would like to recommend? Oh boy, I'm just looking around now. I, I think I already mentioned Open Innovation Results that I did. Uh, I've got Alex Osterwalder's book, The Invincible Company, that uh, I'm really uh, enjoying. And it's a nice, uh, very visual uh, summary of a, a lot of uh, innovation research. I think it's, it's very well done. And then I've got Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, which is, oh man, it's not a fast read, but it's a really deep read. And he himself, I think, is a, a beautiful model of blending the practical with the theoretical. Uh, and the way he structured that book and each of the chapters in the book, uh, to me is uh, still one of the best examples out there, I think. Such Maybe can I very briefly, because I'm, I'm really struck now by the fact that you also mentioned Alex Osterwalder, which, which did a bit a similar career trajectory, not? He did a PhD, and then instead of pursuing an academic career, he wrote this book about the business models and became hugely impactful, even also in academic, uh, in the academic world. So does that also not show a problem for us as academics that the people that seem to decide I do not do the normal trajectories seem to be the people that have most impact? in the end also on academics. And so I think your book on open innovation has had much more impact than maybe papers in top level publications. So do you think it's a problem or is it just something that we should accept? Well, let's see. I think for myself and I think for Alex as well, um, you know, we are not in the very, very best journals in our field the most academically respected journals. I have a diverse portfolio of rejection letters from the very top journals in our field. And so there is a certain amount of gatekeeping that goes on uh, that uh, means those doors are closed to, to me and certainly to Alex. Mm. So although Alex has had a lot of impact in the outer world, mm. uh, he has been kept out of uh, the, the top journals in the academic world. Uh, and so is that a problem or not? Well, I think uh, it's important that academics uh, understand and share research with one another. And we have methods that we use, we have language that we use, research questions we ask that are quickly understood and widely shared, some of which may not be very interesting to industry and managers. So uh, I think in that domain, it's, uh, it's fine that this goes on. But there are moments and opportunities, uh, and I think open innovation was one, where, as I said earlier, I was seeing things at Xerox that Michael Porter could not explain. And uh, that, I think, is something that is relevant both to academics and to industry. Uh, so when you get to those situations, 
um, I think it becomes more abductive, if you will, rather than inductive or deductive, becomes abductive. So to go back to the theory and say, so what do we add to the theory to help us make sense of what we're seeing here? Now, Alex uh, is doing a very good job uh, and making a lot of impact in creating tools to visualize and implement innovation. Uh, he is not trying to go back to theory and update or correct uh, the academic theory. So he and I have differed on that regard. I, I'm yeah. still very much uh, with at least one foot firmly in the academic world. And I still spend a lot of my daily life yeah. with other academics uh, in a way that Alex does not. Yeah. Now, Alex in turn is having impact in lots of companies and lots of places that have never heard of Henry Chesbro and may never have heard of open innovation. So uh, he's, uh, I think he's uh, having, I think he's satisfied with the impact he's having. Um, and uh, I actually invited him as one of our keynote speakers to the World Open Innovation Conference this past December. And I'm hopefully gonna be writing an article with him. So uh, we may start this process of carrying some of this back to uh, academia. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Which will be bluntly rejected by the top journals you expect. <laughs> well, and we should write. So the implication is we have to choose our journal thoughtfully because yeah. if we pick the wrong journal, it will be desk rejected uh, immediately. Yeah. Well, I, I personally am always happy to hear when uh, renowned academics are also writing for the practitioner audience. And I would I'd like to see more and more of that because um, we're, we're customers to your experiences and your research too. So uh, last well, question. I used to be a manager too, Garrett. I remember uh, too uh, thinking, uh, gee, can, can I get more from academia than what I'm getting so far? And uh, feeling like, come on guys, you should be trying a little harder to talk I'm willing to listen. I, I'm a smart guy. I'll, I'll give you some time if you can explain it to me in a language I can understand. Uh, and so I, I had that feeling too. Yeah, awesome. I, I'm gonna ask one little side question because I, hearing your career trajectory, thinking about your life, Bulldogs, Golden Bears, Wolverines, who do you pick? Uh, Wolverines. Wolverines, he's still a Michigan guy. All right. You, you can take the boy out of Michigan, but you can't take the Michigan out of the boy. <laughs> Go blue. Awesome. Henry, thank you so much for joining us today. I know I, I can say for me, it was such a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you, Dries, as okay. well, for joining. Always a pleasure. And uh, thank you for sharing your story with our audience. It was a pleasure and I'm eager to see the uh, the other podcasts now that I've been through this experience myself. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, folks, that was Dr. Henry Chesborough, professor at Cal Berkeley and Luis in Rome. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com follow our channel on YouTube, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.